Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. So we're starting a really big year, and um, it's a year full of, for many people, many, many challenges, but also some incredible opportunities. And I feel the best way we can start is to be reminded who we are. And so uh, two weeks ago and today and next week, taking three simple statements that encapsulate three really vital hallmarks that must define us, I believe do define us, must increasingly do so. And these are the things that will determine whether, as I said last time, whether we actually walk out all those good things that Ephesians 2.10 says he has prearranged for us, good things, good works, a good life for us to live. Um, these three things simply comprise six little words. Uh, and they're often claimed, easy to claim them of ourselves. Uh, but these things have some really big implications. And they are, first of all, that we are spirit-filled. Amen. Secondly, and this is today, that we're Bible-believing. Amen. And thirdly, next week, that we are kingdom-advancing. And I want us to uh, consider how we need to grow in these things. And I hope that by the month end, all of us can say, yep, this is us. I mean, should we just practice? This is us. This is us. Last time I spoke about what it means to be spirit-filled and how the Holy Spirit ministers amongst us and really concluded that without him... There's no revelation, there's no charismatic gifts, there's no power or dynamic in our gatherings, no ministry in the body, no easy way back from sin, no easy solutions, no miracles, no signs, no wonders, no unity, no success in the mission and no focus on Jesus. I think we need him. We can't follow Jesus. We can't live the Christian life. We can't build the church without the Holy Spirit. It will certainly won't fulfill our vision, our dreams, our goals without him. But when we surrender all, it's been good to be reminded of that this morning. When we surrender all, when we ask him to saturate us, which means to be drenched, to be soaked, to be impregnated with his life and power, he transforms everything. So... I do say, if you've not listened or watched yet, catch up to part one in one of the various channels that are out there. And, um, and today we're going to consider what it means to be Bible-believing. And I want to say at the outset, first of all, this is as exciting as being Spirit-filled. We've not moved from, you know, all the thrill and, all the thrill and excitement of being Spirit-filled now to something which is any different. And I also want to say at the outset that the idea of being either Bible-believing or Spirit-filled is an absolute nonsense. It's not that we are either charismatic or evangelical. We're to love the Spirit and the Word with equal passion. You only need to read the first three verses of the Bible. Literally, just the first three verses of the Bible. We'll come to those in a moment. We will read those in a moment. To discover that God's Spirit and God's spoken Word combined together to create all things. The Spirit and the Word are partners in creation. And they're united. And we can't claim to be charismatic, but have little respect for the authority of the word. And neither can Christians claim to be Bible-believing, but relegate what the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit. The first activity of the church after Pentecost, when they were drenched, when they were saturated... Their first activity was to, vote, to devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Yes. Not to manifestations, but to doctrine. Yes. Spirit and word go totally together. Yes. And, and we want to say, this is us, we're spirit-filled. Yes. We're Bible-believing. Yes. 
and they fit together perfectly. This is us. Now, when we declare that we are Bible-believing, we're saying something very profound about the place, the position, the authority of the Word of God in our lives. What we believe about the Bible, by which I mean the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, canonized under the hand of God. What we believe about the Bible is one of the most defining things about us and will set the course for the whole of our lives. We'll say much more about that as we proceed this morning. Um, Let us just have a look at a few verses just to start off with. So this is Matthew 4, verse 4. Can you all um, as well actually get your Bibles out? Get our Bibles out. We're a Bible-believing church, which is more than being a mobile phone-owning church. And and next week, I am going to say something substantial about that. Okay. Just to help us. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 7, the next one. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, and by the way, we can hear the word of God in many ways. Absolutely. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. His words, putting them into practice. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And then the third verse I just want us to look at is in Proverbs 22 where it says, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. In the message it says, don't stealthily move back the boundary lines staked out long ago by your ancestors. So we'll come back to those things. Um, We're all aware of the conflict that is the context for a lot of what we might say about being Bible-believing, that the Word of God is under attack in, a, in our postmodern, post-Christian Western world, that there's an incoming, there are incoming tidal waves of challenges to what were once orthodox beliefs. And that can feel easily overwhelming, threatening, uh, intimidating, It's easy, and um, I'm sure many of us can relate to this, it's easy to feel belittled or mocked or considered out of touch for believing the Bible. Yeah, Yeah? anybody ever felt that? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who goes to school or college who's felt, you know, maybe people think I'm out of touch for believing this, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, nothing's new. Listen to these verses. This is in 2 Timothy 4, verse uh, 3. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Paul's speaking of, of departure from sound doctrine. And there's another verse that I just felt would be helpful. In 1 Peter 3... Um, verses 14, 15, 16. It says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. Lord, I pray this morning that what we consider will, um, for some, be be just a really helpful reminder of what this house is being built on. I pray for some, some, Lord, it will be just a real confidence boost to know uh, what we believe, that we believe it together, what we stand for. I pray, Lord, that for others it will be um, really helpful just to know what's happening amongst us here, what being part of this church is all about. So, Lord, speak through your word, we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you. This, the word is, is your sword, your, your sharp instrument. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you, through your word and your spirit, will minister amongst us this morning. Amen. 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 Um, we can't really understand these, um, these conflicts, these, this current challenging um, environment without first... Um, seeing the origins of it all. And I'd just like you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. This, is, this will just be really helpful um, to consider. In Genesis 1, in those first three verses, first of all, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, spoke words, let there be light and there was light. We could read on but I'm sure you're familiar with that. God spoke and uh, the word in partnership with the spirit united together to fulfill the will of God. And God's word was, um, throughout the chapter there, was, was clear, was unambiguous, was powerful, was creative, and everything it gave life to was very good. That's important. Everything the word of God gave life to was and is very good. When we turn to chapter 3, we read this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. We'll just pause there. God spoke a word that was very, very good and the serpent, a fallen angel, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, disguised in the guise of a serpent, his strategy was to immediately attack God's word, to challenge, to confuse, to actually misrepresent, to misstate what God had said. God didn't say you can't eat uh, from, you can't eat from the, um, any tree in the garden. He'd not said that at all. God had spoken about one particular tree. It wasn't even, as the woman later said, the tree in the middle of the garden. It was one of the two trees in the middle of the garden. There's a lot of confusion in all of this. And Satan comes and his first words, did God really say? He's a snake. He's a liar. 
and a thief. That's how Jesus described him. And in attacking God's word, he commonly, and he does it here, uses three big lies. So if you put the picture up. The first lie is this. God doesn't love you. If he did, he wouldn't restrict your freedom. He'd let you eat whatever you wanted. He's withholding good things from you. God doesn't love you. That's implicit in this attack. Second thing that he, he'll, he'll often say, it won't kill you. God doesn't really mean what he said. You won't actually die. Ever heard that? This won't hurt you. This won't kill you. You'll be, just a little bit will be fine. The third big lie, it's your right. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. We'll come on to that. They already were like God, made in his image. God is keeping you from your true destiny. Three big lies. God doesn't love you. It won't hurt you. It won't kill you. It's your right. And that's kind of implicit in this attack, this subtle, snake-like attack upon what God had said. Everything God said was true and good. And this is the first strategy of the enemy. And if you just put the other one back up, Nathaniel, these lies were designed to mess with mankind's identity and his, his relationship with God. They're all driven by, by Satan, by this fallen angel, with an envy, with a jealousy, with a hatred of these two who were made in the image of God. Because when you read back in Isaiah 14, verse 14, and it describes the fall of Lucifer, the angel, he says, I will make myself like the Most High. Here's an angel who always wanted to exalt his position, to, to go above his position, and to be like God. And here in the garden, he's confronted with two who are made in the image of God. And his strategy is to try and spoil that identity. Confuse them. Challenge God's word. Attack them. It's your right. It won't kill you. God doesn't love you. It says in Romans 1 that in believing the word of the liar over the word of God, which is what they did, Romans 1.25 describes this as exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And folks, once sin entered mankind's world through that fall, everything became infected and affected. Sin infected everything. Sin affected everything. The consequences were immediate. As soon as you read on, there's, there's murder, there's war, there's hatred, there's jealousy. The consequences were immediate and were universal. And so these issues of identity and truth and about our relationship with God have been the battleground ever since. I believe that we're now in the final stages of that war. Jesus has won the victory, but the church is now outworking it on earth, and the battle often feels fiercest when the end is in sight, even though the outcome is already guaranteed. It's not a real war. Jesus has won totally, perfectly. But there's a mopping up exercise. And directly or indirectly, loudly or quietly, the liar, the thief, is seeking to steal and kill and destroy you could say he's trying to make disciples. He's trying to make followers. And so in schools and colleges and universities, through film and TV and media, his lies, his worldview is being promoted and sponsored and delivered directly into kids' bedrooms, into our living rooms, into our hearts and minds. Millions are being duped, seduced, tricked, robbed, lied to. And so I want to say, if, if we want our families, our families to be discipled by the word, we have to intervene. 
We must get involved. We must provide a Bible-believing context for adults and children and youth to be discipled into the life of God. That's why this matters so much. Amen? So against this backdrop, another long intro. At such a time as this, I'd like us to consider, first of all, what we believe about the Bible, and therefore, and therefore, what we believe because of the Bible. Okay? I'm going to read some verses. I'm, I can't remember whether these are on the screen or not. No, they're not. If you just put that, put that off for a second. Just listen then to these, these verses. Psalm 119. First, there's so many verses we could use to, to tell us about the Bible. Um, and so I've just selected a few that I think will be helpful, five or six of them. Psalm 119, verse 89. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. John 17, 17. Jesus says... Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16. Just turn to this one because we'll come back to this. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3. It's a 3.16 verse. Easy to remember. 2 Timothy 3.16. Says. Perhaps we can all. Perhaps in our various versions we could all read this out loud together. To be amazing, chaotic and amazing all at the same time. 2 Timothy 3.16, are you ready? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness. We'll read the next verse as well. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's a good one. Anybody reading from the Amplified? Still going. going. Where's Louise Warren when you need her? (laughs) With the kids, probably. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, this would be another good one to read out loud, but we've done that once, so just turn to it. For the word of God is living and active, effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword. Some people are just reciting this now from memory, which is great penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And the last one, 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origins in the human will, But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to put up, um, I think there's five of these. Um, So just, if you wait till the end and take a photo of that, then all the verses will be up there. Because I'm not going to, I'm going to necessarily be quite brief and just make some statements. But the references uh, validate the points. What do we believe about the Bible? Firstly, it's God's word. It was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed. That means literally, it, it, it contains the, I haven't put the literal thing here, it contains the life of God. God-breathed. Living and active. I, I honestly, whenever I pick my Bible up, I believe it's alive. I believe it's not the same, it's not the same, it's not going to say the same things to me that it said yesterday. It's alive. It's fresh today. This is God's living, breathing, active, effective, penetrating word. The Bible is living and active, alive, and therefore speaking. And that's why we sometimes call the Bible the word of God. It's God's voice to us. Wow, I mean, just if we stop there, isn't that enough? This is God who's who's inspired words on a page that can speak to us and touch us now, thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, 
This is amazing. And this is us. We believe this is God's word. Secondly, we believe the Bible is um, the word of God and, and, and is, as Jesus said, true. It's the word of God who does not lie. It's true. Psalm 18 says it is pure, flawless. Therefore, it is authoritative in our lives and our churches. It is the word of the creator. It is the highest word. It is the highest authority. It is the the authority against which all other words, all other voices, all other opinions, all other worldviews are to be evaluated and judged. Um, That is why, and you know, you just accept this, our beliefs about the Bible are derived from the Bible. It's what the Bible says about itself because there is no higher authority. And we believe it. We take, take it by faith. We believe these things. I think thirdly, it's important to say we do believe there are mysteries that don't invalidate the word but actually elevate it. Because the Bible itself says that in Deuteronomy 29, 29, could you put the next, the next one up? Yeah. In Revelation, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, it, said, it says the revealed things belong to us. God has revealed things and now they belong to us. They're ours to take. But there are secret things that belong to God. And that's important when we're talking about being Bible-believing because... Um, I just want to say we don't have to fully understand something for it to be true, for it to be uh, relevant, for it to be trustworthy, and for it to be authoritative. There are secret things that belong. There are mysteries. Paul starts to reveal some of the mysteries he's, he's had a revelation of, but, but, he can, but there are other things he's not permitted to tell us. And there are other things he's not even seen. Mysteries. I love that. Don't you, don't you love that? That there are, there are things beyond what's been revealed? To think we've got it all in here is, is not true. That This Bible doesn't explain everything. But there are revealed things that now belong to us. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter talks about Paul's writings. That's also worth turning to. It's all worth turning to. It's amazing. 2 Peter 3.15. He says, Regard the patience of the Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul. So this is Peter writing about Paul. Um, Just as our dear brother Paul, according to the wisdom God has given him, has written to you. He speaks about these things in all his letters, in which there there are some matters that are hard to understand. And the untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. His Peter understand that Paul is writing scripture, even before it got canonized and included in our Bibles. Paul's letters were understood to contain the very word of God. And some of it's hard to understand. Mysteries. We then fourthly believe that about the Bible that um, it is eternal. And we read some of those verses, and therefore relevant today. It's not constrained by time or culture. That really matters. We believe our theology, our doctrines must be rooted in God's word, and every experience should be tested against the word. We don't build our practices based on anything that contradicts the word eternal and relevant. And then lastly, in terms of what we believe about the Bible, we believe the world should be understood and interpreted through the word, not the other way around. The spirit of the age, the culture of the day, does not interpret the Bible for us. Far from it. The Bible interprets. The Bible makes sense of the culture of the day. Don't be intimidated by...
by people that see that differently. This is our plumb line. This is our measuring line. Amen. This is vital. This is, this is at the heart of the issues of our day. What is our authority? Therefore, okay, everybody happy so far? Okay, apart from my opening comments about the mobile phones, I know. I know. Oh, here he goes again. Um, therefore, let, let's move on and, and just say some things that we believe because of the Bible. Yes. And what I want to do here is to, is to say, look, since we believe... By the way, how many of you can... Just, can you put the last page back up, Nathaniel? How many of you can just stand up and say, this is us? Yes. This is us. Yeah, I, I'm not, it's not just me. It's not just me, is it? No, we believe this. This is what we believe. This is us. I believe it too, Rich. Yeah. And therefore, because of what we believe about the Bible, because we believe it is God's word, because we believe it is authoritative, because we believe that there are revealed things and there are still some mysteries, because we believe it is relevant for today, because it's eternal, and because we believe that, that we should interpret the world, the culture, the spirit of the age through the scriptures, therefore... Here's some things we believe because of that. Bible believing means we believe the Bible above all other voices, all other opinions, all other philosophies, all other trends or shifts in society. However powerful or even intimidating they may seem. Kids, youth, However loud the world shouts, however loud the spirit of the ages does not mean it's authoritative in our lives. This is our authority. The Bible is our plumb line, our measure. So I'm going to take seven big things. Seven big things. Uh, a lot of ground to cover. That including some areas where we may feel a lot of pressure and say something briefly about what this house is built on. I have to be brief, and the reason I'm smiling is because the elders will be unpacking these things over the coming weeks, on Sundays and in life groups. Uh, and I was thinking on the way over, we may even arrange something like a Q&A evening on some of these things. I think that would be good as well. So I'm just going to make some statements. And again, um, I won't be referring to all the references, but they'll all be up there. And if you wait till the end, you can take a photo of all of them. I may put these notes up somewhere as well, because it's really important, really super important, that we're all confident about these things. So first of all, about life. Bible tells us God created all things and that he made mankind distinct from all other creatures on a separate day when he'd finished all the other creation. Then he made the man in his image. Bible says that he created, if you read carefully, um, he created the heavens for the earth. The sun and the moon were there to give light to the earth. Heavens were made for the earth. I think if you, if you read it properly, the Bible tells us that the earth was created for the man. And the man was created for the mission. It's all about the purpose of God. All about the will of God being fulfilled. The Bible tells us that life and meaning and purpose begins in the womb. That God knows us and loves us and has a plan for us even before we're born. Psalm 139. I think that reference is up there, yeah. As far as life is concerned, I, I believe the universe is amazing. And I wish you understand it, understood just a little bit of it. That life is precious and God is awesome. I came across this quote by... Um, D.L. Moody. Anybody heard of D.L. Moody? Moody and Sankey? Yep. D.L. Moody. I've got a little book called Notes from My Bible. 
and it's D.L. Moody's scribblings from his Bible put into book form, and there's some treasures in there. But listen to this. I do not know anything more difficult to believe than the first verse of the Bible, which says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He says, I do not know anything more difficult to believe than the first verse of the Bible. If we master this verse, anything else that happened in the heavens or in the earth, which God created, will not stumble us. Isn't that brilliant? If you believe God created the heavens and the earth, you're already on a roll. You can embrace anything else. And we don't believe out of ignorance. We, we, we believe by faith, Hebrews said, that God created the heavens and the earth. So that's some things about life. Secondly, about sin and salvation. The Bible tells us that all mankind, since that fall, is born into sin. It's a heart condition. It's a root of self-centeredness, of independence, that results in thoughts and words and deeds that go against God's will. We call the, the sin is a root issue with many fruit. Sins. Sin is the root. Sins are the fruit. Thoughts, words and deeds. That everyone's sinned, Romans 3.23, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Everyone needs a saviour. Yes. Jesus is the saviour. Yes. And I, I say this because the things that the Bible calls sin or sins, and I'm just going to read the list from Galatians 5.19. For example, sexual immorality, impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, envy, rage, selfish ambition, drunkenness. It's one of the lists. One of the lists of, often in the epistles, of lists of, of things that are sins. Um, and just to say, they're as sinful today as ever. Just because they've been redefined or reworded as freedom, liberty, personal choice, personal rights doesn't change their nature or their impact. Yeah, that's right. The Bible calls it sin. And that really matters because when these things inevitably prove empty, hollow, unfulfilling, and we acknowledge sin, there's a saviour who comes to forgive us, who has come, who forgives us and restores us and provides hope and a brand new start, hallelujah. So it matters that we call sin, sin, and we acknowledge it, and we repent of it, and we receive forgiveness, and we're washed clean. I was driving over this morning thinking, his blood washes me clean of all sin. How wonderful, how marvelous, hallelujah. Thirdly, about the church. We believe... Um, because the Bible tells us that Jesus is building his church and that she's his body and she's his bride and many other wonderful images. And as we mentioned briefly last week, that the church is God's masterpiece. That's the verse in Ephesians 2.10. And the church is the focus of his eternal plan and purpose. And the apostles in the New Testament repeatedly make clear that the church is the spiritual Israel of God. And I say that not because the church is a replacement of Israel, of Old Testament Israel, but because the church, combining believing Jews, believing Gentiles, is the fulfillment. It's a fulfillment theology of God's plan, God's eternal plan to have a people for himself. I was reading Ephesians 2 during the week. I was so blessed by this. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I think they're... I'll just put Ephesians, because yeah, there's so many verses in Ephesians about the church. But Paul writes to the Ephesian church, a group of Jews and Gentiles, but specifically writing to the Gentiles in the church, he says in verse 12... 
At that time, you were without the Messiah. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants. But now you've come in. Now you have a Messiah. Now you are included in the citizenship of Israel. There's much more we could say about that, but it's just important to just say we believe all believing Jews, all believing Gentiles are part of the wonderful, glorious masterpiece that is the church, which is the house of the Spirit, which is equipped by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, led by elders and deacons, and with a place for everybody. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the church. I love the church. I do. Must be something God did to me. I think we might be about to go on to the next slide. So if you, if you want to take a photo of... The, is there one more on this one, Nathaniel? There we are. Okay, one more. About gender and identity. Wow. The Bible tells us that God created male and female. Two genders, two types, two kinds, distinct and totally complementary. I believe my gender is not an accident, not a biological phenomenon alone, but a gift from God. And remember, on this topic, God's word and mankind's identity are under attack from a thief, from a liar, who's introduced a great confusion. And the issue for many is an identity crisis. Okay, take a photo if you want. We're moving on. Train is moving. Number five in a series of seven. About sexual ethics. The Bible tells us that God created and blessed marriage as a covenant and a union of a man and a woman. And as the only proper place, listen ever so carefully here, as the only proper place for sexual intimacy. Every kind of sexual intimacy outside that marriage is described in the Bible as sexual immorality. And it's important to say here, matters established in creation are relevant at any time in any culture. And secondly, if God tells us something is out of bounds, off limits, you may not eat from it, it's always for our good. He loves us. He knows what's best. He wants us to enjoy the best. And therefore, we're not to engage in pornography, foreplay, or any kind of sexual intimacy outside marriage. As it says in Ephesians 5, verse 3, There's a a verse for most things in Ephesians. (laughs) Sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. It's a high bar. We want to say this is us. That's the bar bar we want to be reaching to. Number six, about mission. The Bible tells us that we're spirit-filled to be witnesses and to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus in the power and spirit of Elijah. Gosh, there's so many verses to look up here. To continue the works of Jesus. And therefore, like Jesus, and I want to put all these points together, like Jesus, to be filled with compassion and mercy and equal measures of grace and truth or of truth and grace and with a love for the world that sends us into the harvest fields and the seventh one about the end times I've really covered some ground haven't I from life creation to the end times the Bible tells us Jesus is returning for a bride made ready pure and spotless and glorious and that the house of the Lord will be raised as chief among the mountains, Isaiah 2, to all nations will stream to her, and that God is restoring all things, Acts 3.21, 
back to his original intention so that all things will be united in Christ. Ephesians 1.10. Therefore, we're optimistic about how things will turn out. We have an optimistic eschatology. Could you all say that together? Optimistic eschatology. We believe good things about the end times. You look really confused. An optimistic eschatology. It's not the end of the world. No. Love it. I got that from Rich Jones just now. This is us. This is where we stand. And I'm so glad that we believe God's word, that we embrace his boundaries, and we know that we and multitudes of others are handmade and deeply loved. Does this kind of Bible believing make us irrelevant, unattractive, out of touch? Well, the liar would love us to think so. But the truth is the Bible is always relevant, always life-giving, always good news. I believe that believing these things makes you and I part of the answer. Our love for the world must move us with compassion for those who need Christ. In John 10.10, Jesus says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it in abundance. The liar and the thief and the sin he introduced has misrepresented God's word, has corrupted and confused everything. We never deny the reality of people's challenges or beliefs or struggles, but God loves the world. And he now comes through his church with grace and truth to restore all things. I'd hate us to be known for anything other than what we're for. The Bible's message is good news, full of love, full of grace, full of hope. Let's be known for what we're for. Just to kind of bring some conclusion, being Bible-believing in our day means making some choices, taking some stands. We choose conviction over compromise. Amen? We choose the fear of God over a fear of man. Amen? We choose Christ over culture. And we also choose loving others over judging others. Whatever convictions we hold, we absolutely reject intolerance and bigotry. We will listen carefully, never impose our beliefs, always offer hope, always carry and convey good news. This is us. Amen? You know, for me, it mean, for me Bible-believing means I, I read it. Not as often as I, as I dream of or aspire to, but I read it regularly because it's God's living and active word, his daily source, the daily source of his life into my life. I read it daily. I discuss it with others. Deborah, Rich, Chris, the elders, friends. I discuss it because it's central in our lives. Some, one of the most important things about us is, is our love for the word. We talk about it a lot. I obey its instructions, however countercultural, whether I have a full understanding of them or not, and whatever others think. I study it to form convictions. Just like the Holy Spirit, the Bible has been my companion for years. It's transformed me. It's revealed Jesus to me. It's stirred my love for the church. It's stirred my hunger for the Holy Spirit. It's given me a fear of God that's kept me safe. Brought me physical health. My belief in the Bible has brought health to me. Physical, mental health. It's enabled me to prosper in all things. It's been, been the foundation of all my choices and decisions for the last 35 years. I think what I'm trying to say is, this book has never let me down. Never proved false. And I commend it to you. This is us. And as we press forward this year, 
Being a Bible-believing church will bring massive blessings. Firm foundations, peace and joy and security. Unmovable boundary stones, unchanging reference points, knowing what we stand for. Must be getting cold in here. He's putting their coats on. We want, our, we want wisdom in raising our children. We want our youth to head to uni with confidence. Amen. May his word be loved, cherished, adored, read, believed, and obeyed by all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, and all the ones in between like me. So this year, as we, um, as we grow as a spirit-filled, Bible-believing church, I want us to be able to say that we love the spirit and we love the word with equal passion. This is us. And our doors are wide open. So if you're in, be really in. And if you're coming in, come quickly. Amen? Amen. Next week, we're talking about kingdom advance. And if you were one of, I'm going to talk about some goals and some plans for the year, including a major, a major new way of, of training and equipping that we're putting together. I'd love also to get your feedback on that £20 note thing. Oh, yes. So in the next week, if you have a great testimony of how God used you to advance the kingdom somehow, some little way, through those £20, can you message me, email me, get, get something through, because I'd love us to highlight some of those next week. God bless you. The appeal this morning... The kids are going to come back in, is this. If you would like to move this year into a deeper relationship with the Word, we'd love to pray for you. If you've found Bible reading difficult, it's just never been as alive as the way I've described, we'd love to pray for you. That the Spirit of God will bring the word alive and, and bring life into your reading this year. So that's the appeal. That's where we'd love to pray. And um, Lord, we just say thank you so much. This is us, Lord, spirit-filled, Bible-believing. And Lord, I pray that from today there'll come a fresh, deeper desire to um, immerse ourselves, to reference ourselves, to believe your word and to make it authoritative in our lives, Lord. I give you all praise and honor, Lord, this morning. As, as we started today, so we end and say, it's all about you, Jesus. It's your word. You are the word. You're the manifestation of the word. You're the word made flesh. It's all about you, Lord. And we pray that you will be glorified and honored in our lives and in our church this year. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.